He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. As the days of our self-isolation continue, we find ourselves at the third Sunday of Easter. And while some of the excitement of the first day of a new creation has subsided, we meet today some of the most approachable characters in the entire Easter story, Clopas and his companion. It is, at least to me, a little hard to relate to the two Marys who felt the earth shake, who met the angels in dazzling white, who actually held the feet of the risen Jesus. And last week it was the 10, and then the 11, as Thomas stretched out his finger in holy terror to touch the flesh of God. These are all, at least in my book, in a category by themselves. But today we find Cleopas and his companion walking on the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We do not know the name of the companion, but for a little while this morning, I invite you to be that unnamed follower of a crucified Redeemer. Luke does not tell us what your business was in Emmaus. It may have simply been to a trip to get out of Dodge, as Lynn and I talk about it. Something our stir-crazy quarantine minds can certainly relate to. Time to take a break from what has been a horrendous four days. From the Passover meal, to the betrayal, to the trial, another trial, and then the horror of the crucifixion and a hasty burial in a borrowed tomb. And if that's not enough, this wild news from the women that it at least has been partially confirmed. You and Clopas are talking with each other about all these things that have happened. What were you talking about? These things. Are you talking theology? Maybe. But I doubt it. It's probably more practical questions. Rehashing the what-ifs. What if Judas had not taken the bride or was mistaken about the garden? What if the Sanhedrin had realized they really didn't have a case to bring before Pilate? What if Pilate had listened to his wife? But it is frequently the case with these practical questions that have theological underpinnings that we may not see at first glance. The bride had to be. It was prophesied in Jeremiah and Zechariah. The garden and the Sanhedrin were the working out of God's plan for salvation. And Pilate, Pilate had to be the one to hand him over to die in our place. For only a Roman execution squad would lift Jesus up on the cross as a serpent in the wilderness. We also run into these theological questions that have practical application, especially during this current pandemic. For example, I did not pronounce the absolution today because I have not heard your confession. Yet I can declare God's grace in Jesus' death and resurrection and pray that God would grant this unto us all. This I joyously undertook to do, and then to preach the gospel and finally pronounce the blessing. Put God's name upon you, his people, even though you are physically not in front of me. But once more, on the way, you and Cleopas are talking and discussing. The Greek here would actually allow a little more heated exchange, disputing and debating when Jesus himself drew near and was journeying with you. But your eyes were literally seized or restrained so that you did not recognize him. Why is that? It is one of the curiosities of the resurrected Jesus. In John's account, Mary Magdalene mistakes him for the gardener. And later on, 
Only, it is only after John makes the connection that the others recognize Jesus there on the shore of the lake of Galilee. Seized. Your eyes were seized. The word is a passive. And coupled with the obviously divine passive of verse 31, when your eyes are open, this is the simplest explanation. God prevented you from seeing his son. But there is another literary and theological reason. Listen again to Luke's narrative. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Recognition refers to more than just physical appearance, but to the understanding of and the appreciation for the entire scope of God's plan of salvation. What God in Jesus was doing to redeem Israel. Foreshadow your own mistaken notion in verse 21. The unrecognized fellow traveler asks, what of these words that you cast at one another while you're walking along? It stops you dead in your tracks, looking sad. Sad-faced, gloomy, sullen. The only other time this word shows up in the New Testament is on Jesus' lips to describe the disfigured appearance of those who fast hypocritically. You are the portrait of despair. And then Cleopas finds his voice. Do you alone sojourn in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in her these days? Pilgrim, a sojourner, come to celebrate the Passover. You will soon learn just how right you are. Jesus plays a little bit of the straight man as he prods you along. What things? Cleopas responds for both of you, spelling out what amounts to an incomplete Christology. He was a man. Yes. A prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the presence of God and all the people. True enough, but not enough. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Exactly right. But what do you mean, redeemer? Let's shift out of our role play for just a moment and ask it another way. What kind of redeemer, or more accurately, redeemers, are being sought in our culture, in our world? There is the Redeemer from pain. A Redeemer who would stop this dreaded pandemic in its tracks, comfort those who have lost loved ones, and put the global economy back on track. And while you're at it, why not a Redeemer from social inequality? The differences between ethnic groups and socioeconomic classes have certainly been highlighted in this ordeal. What if the virus takes hold in the emerging world as it has among the developed nations? In ERs of New York, be a walk in Central Park compared to the carnage that could ravage the ghettos of Central America or the medical wilderness of Sub-Saharan Africa. We need that Redeemer. Being even more crass, how many seek a Redeemer from poverty? Not the ones we just mentioned, the truly poor. No, the keeping up with the Joneses prosperity Redeemer that gets preached from plexiglass pulpits and delivered in private jets. That Redeemer is certainly being looked for among us. Once more, on the way. What was the Redeemer of Israel you and Cleopas were looking for? Perhaps it would be easier to begin to answer that question with a negative. The Redeemer of Israel did not include a Roman cross. It likely did include political and social dimensions, freedom from Roman tyranny, and a new Israel set apart among the nations. 
right there is the error with all of these redeemers from pain or inequality or poverty or national identity. They're all located in this time, in this age, and not in God's time. You need an eternal redeemer. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus identifies his mission and then points us to the sacred record. If only this little role play could be reality, here is where I would most long to be. As from Moses and from all the prophets, he explained to them, to us, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Two things should grab our attention as this exposition begins. First, the role of Christ, as understood by the Christ, to suffer and then to enter into glory. Arthur Just observes that the essence of the Old Testament prophetic office is that the prophet is both miracle worker and suffering servant. Human reason can grasp the first, the miracle worker. We can see the evidence of that. But only the Spirit can cause us to understand the latter. God's righteous plan of salvation requires an innocent and righteous Messiah to suffer an agonizing death and to be raised on the third day. With his death on Friday, your sin died. And with his resurrection on Sunday, he declared, you are redeemed. The second thing we should notice is the revelation of the Spirit I just alluded to. Jesus opened the scriptures concerning himself. But to what does he point? Certainly such prophecies as Genesis 3.15, the promise of a seed to crush the serpent, and number 17, the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness, but other prophetic types as well, the scapegoat, and the manna, and the entire sacrificial system. Almost certainly Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. How else can we explain the proof text that Peter had ready at hand when the Spirit descended with power on Pentecost? Even though we can only be there by role-playing Cleopas' companion, there is much that we can and should take away from the remainder of your journey to Emmaus. Scripture is God's special revelation. Through it, he would have us know his plan, his salvation, his Redeemer. If you would know these things, look here. And suddenly, here you are, or there you are, at Emmaus. And this strange sojourner has completely turned the tables on you. You began schooling him on these things that had happened in Jerusalem, and he has reversed the field, teaching you what they mean. And now, he himself acted as if he were journeying farther. Indeed, he was. He was on his way to the Father. But he graciously turns in, at your urging, to remain with you. And another reversal. The guest becomes the host. This is not the first time you have reclined with Jesus at table. Indeed, table fellowship is a defining theme in Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. The feast with Levi in chapter 5. The woman forgiven after anointing Jesus' feet while reclining at table in Simon's house, chapter 7. The feeding of the 5,000, chapter 14, just to touch on a few. In all of them, Jesus combines teaching and eating communicate the kingdom of God. Stepping out of our role play for a moment, we notice this pattern of teaching and then eating in the pattern of our liturgy. 
the service of the word, followed by the service of the sacrament. But is this meal the sacrament? The short answer is no. And it hinges on the most dramatic point in the greeting. Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. There are no words of consecration. Jesus is present and then he is literally off on us, invisible. The only meal that Jesus commanded us to repeat is predicated on his sacramental presence, not his visible presence. Yet this meal is unique as well. It is the first time Jesus is recognized as the crucified and risen Messiah in Luke's Gospel. Still, even if this is not the sacrament, Jesus' willingness to join Cleopas and his companion for a meal demonstrates his commitment to fellowship and community that we so long for during this quarantine. Indeed, many of us pray for it every day in the common table prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Perhaps we should hear this as the first offering of that petition and rejoice in Jesus' ready acceptance. Even though the celebration of our sacramental union is suspended, we remain confident in our spiritual union. One on the cross, declared from the open tomb, sealed unto each of us through baptism, God declaring through water and word, you are mine. But once more, for the last time, on the way, you and Cleopas did not even take time to finish the meal. Your hearts burned, your feet ran, and your mouths opened, telling the eleven and those who were gathered what had happened on the road and how he had made known to you the breaking of the bread. We, too, are Easter confessors. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia. We confess him in the creed in just a moment. We talk about what excites us even in isolation. We make it known that God has revealed his salvation in his Son, in his word. Alleluia. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.